welcome everyone. I'm Mark Rubo. I'm from Reading's Bookshops, and I have with me here tonight David Maloof. But I'd like to welcome you on on behalf of Readings and also David's publisher, the University of Queensland Press, and also thank uh, Nova Cinemas for providing this venue tonight. Uh, I'd just like to acknowledge that we're here today on Aboriginal country. Uh, We're in the land of the Boon and the Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present. So tonight we're very privileged to have David Maloof down here for us. I'm sure you know who David is. He's won so many awards uh, for his novels, for his poetry. Uh, He's a winner of the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, the Impact Award, many awards. He's the author of uh, five novels. Nine novels. Nine novels or novellas. <laughs> yeah. And three books of short yeah. stories. Uh, so <laughs> we're, he's one of our literary legends. So we're just going to talk about, I guess, his life, his work. And David has kindly said that he'd read some poems from his new books and, and tell us a little bit about where they came from and um, help you understand and enjoy them. Uh David, so let's. I'm really interested in your career as a writer. Um, your first published work was um, in 1964. Uh, 1962. 62. Yeah. Cheshire's. Uh, Cheshire's, yes, and it was a, a a collection of 12 poems each by four poets, and it was called Four Poets, and they, the other poets were Rodney Hall and Judith Green, as she was then, Judith Rodriguez, who's about to have a book come out with Puncher and Watman next month, uh, and Don Maynard, who in those days worked at Cheshire's. And um, that was the first time, I think, that poets had got together uh, and made their debut by having a small number of poems, 12 poems each. And I think then almost immediately after that, there was eight poems Eight Poets, published uh, in uh, Victoria, again, with Melbourne poets, Chris right. Wallace Crabbe and um, several other poets. And what was it like being a writer in the, in the 60s and 70s? Uh, well, I... Um, basically, uh, no-one ever set out to be a writer, I think, at that mm. time. You, you, you actually uh, wrote some things and you sent them off to one of the magazines, Mianjin or Overland or to the Australian newspaper. And if the poems got published and people noticed it, then you were sort of on the scene. And at that point, I think you said to yourself, maybe, um, maybe I could publish a book. But I, I, there was no possibility of your being a professional writer. And I think that's quite good because uh, I would want to say even now that there is really, there ought to be no such thing as a professional writer. You know, writing is an amateur occupation. And um, why you write is not to launch yourself as as a public figure and not even necessarily to have a career. It's to find out what you have to write. And that, after, people have often said to me, when did you know 
you're a writer. And I'd say, well, I think a writer knows when he's a writer if he's published four books. Right. And I think that's, I, I, and I mean that, 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 you know, you, the books tell you uh, what you, uh, what kind of writer you are, but what your possibilities are as a writer. And you keep writing the books to discover how much more you have to discover and how much further you can push yourself. Yeah. That's very amateur, very, very amateurish. And did you, you've written across a number of genre, genres. Do you have a central theme that you're trying to explore or something you want to achieve through your work? No, I wouldn't say that. I'd say that um, what happens with each book is something grabs your interest and you can't let it go. And why you write... The, I'm th talking now about novels. Yeah. Uh, why you... Uh, what, what you want to find out is why this thing has grabbed you and, and what it is out there in what you've seen or uh, been interested in that is somehow connected with something inside you. And the writing is meant to explain to you and to reveal to you what that connection is. And uh, you don't really know, I mean, I certainly don't know what the plot of the book is. Uh, I don't know what the theme of the book is. All I'm following really is uh, a, 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 an obsession with something that I now can't let go of until I've got a book in front of me that says, this is what all this was about. This is why <laughs> you pursued this. This is what you think, what you feel. And you discover those things in the writing. You don't put them there. In a, you've used Greek themes or Greek writers as an inspiration a few times in your work. Is, is that... Uh, well, classical ones. Classical yeah. Greek, yeah. Uh, look, I belong to a kind of generation where um, uh, the classics w w were enormously exciting. I mean, I did Latin at school, but um, I, I had that kind of education where from the age of six or seven, you were, you learned about Greek myths. And that whole world of... Um, inherited uh, archetypal memory that belongs to Greek myths, but also belongs to fairy stories, belongs to Grimm's stories, belongs to Cinderella and Little Red Riding Hood and Puss in Boots. All of those things uh, are, are things that have shaped your way of reading the world. So I, 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 those things really belong, <clears throat> when I say um, memory, I mean, they belong in some kind of archetypal way to a world that connects with our dreaming. And I think I'm a writer who's shaped by the belief that what I write also has to belong to that, that archetypal world. And so going back to something like Homer or following that story which I did in an imaginary life was about Ovid's exile, um, that was really pursuing that um, inherited world. When I wrote both of those books, that's Ransom very, very late and An Imaginary Life very early, I said to myself, look, I probably no one's ever going to be interested in this. 
I've got to write this book because I've got to find out what it is I've got to find out. Um, and only when the book's finished do you say, well, if it has kept my energy going and has interested me so much and it has moved me, I'm not so unusual that there won't be some people <laughs> Someone out there else. who won't respond in the same way. And you do then what you do with the book, which is you send it out into the world to find its own friends and lovers. <laughs> and that's, um, uh, that's, that's how you make a readership and how you keep a readership, if you manage to do that, and how you increase a readership. That is by, by, by saying there are people out there who are likely to find this thing interesting or because I have. So you've never written with a market in, no, no. in mind? No, and, and in fact, look, that's a really kind of late idea. I mean, when I started writing, um, nobody ever referred to, the, to, to writing as an industry. And mostly in Australia, people were not professional writers. There were some professional writers, but mostly writing, what you did in the early days, you did at the kitchen table, or you did at your desk at home after you came in from whatever your work was, whether it was teaching or journalism or whatever. And that's a very good way to start. Um, I had written, it was only when I wrote An Imaginary Life, which was my second novel, although I'd already published four books of poetry. It was only when I published An, um, an Imaginary Life and it got taken up by a publisher in New York and then a publisher in London and, and so on. So it was about to make a, a, a big um, splash that I said to myself, maybe it's a good time to give up teaching. I was working at the university. I'd been 10 years at Sydney University. I gave up working there. I uh, took $8,000 of my superannuation, um, used it to buy a very, very small house in a very, very remote part of Italy. And I thought, OK, what I'm going to do now is sit here and find out what it is I've got in me that I can write full time. And that's what I did. And I wrote, I think, I think I wrote six books in the next eight years. Right. And that was by staying in that little isolated house for 10 months of the year, each year. So it was a very pro productive. Yeah, it was great. Think, think I mean, I, you know, I wrote a lot of, lot of stuff. And most, mostly, I, as I said, that's where I really discovered what the range of my writing might be, what kind of novels they were. Uh, and, you know, you don't, by, by writing a novel, you don't discover how to write novels because what you've discovered in that novel will be of no help whatsoever <laughs> for the next one because the next one will have its own kinds of demands. And so you just go on from one to the other saying, oh, I see, okay, now what, what about this? So the, the books, when they first um, came in that, uh, that range, um, people were very, very puzzled by them. Critics could not understand. Because they weren't the same. They, hmm? <laughs> they weren't similar. They weren't similar mm. enough. And um, I thought that was, that was good. And uh, after a time, other people thought that was, <laughs> that was good as well because they, they, they could see that what I was beginning to see was that there might be a very, very wide range of, um, of kinds of uh, novel you could write. 
at that point, I also started writing short stories. And usually what happens with a writer is that they write short stories, and then somehow they think they've learned from writing short stories how to write novels. They often um, don't ever go on once they've written the novel to write mm. short stories again. I didn't write a short story that I was thought was worth keeping and publishing until I'd finished four novels. And um, then the short story uh, really, really interested me as a form. And I, you know, I wrote three collections of stories. And they went right from 1985 right up until uh, 2008, I think it is. Um, so, you know, this short story has engaged me right across the whole of my, my life. But I, I, I found short stories much more demanding and difficult um, to please me and to fit into the body of my work than novels. And, 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 and what, what I'm really talking about is that what happens to you after a certain time is you realise that there is a body of writing which is your work. Some of it mm. you've now done and you begin to see what more there might be. Uh, I began several things, stories, novels, got sometimes quite a long way into it, 10,000 mm. words into a novel. You know, you get very excited about something and you produce a lot in, in a burst. Mm. And I've got 10,000 words, 12,000, 20,000 words into a novel and said to myself, mm, this is a good idea for a novel, but it's not one of my novels. Right. And um, that means I don't think it belongs in the body of work. I don't think it speaks to the other novels and challenges them or amplifies them or adds in any way. And at that point, I, I've let it go. And wh what have you done with that? Have you thrown, uh, thrown it out? Yeah, you throw it out. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you so it's not it, going to be dredged you up. You keep after. it for a very, very long time, and then one day you just say, this is not yeah, right. time to go. So you lived in Italy all that time, but, uh, but you decided to come back, back to Australia. Um, oh, I'd always come back every year for a right. couple of months. To see family and yes, friends. Yes, yeah. And um, so I didn't ever think of myself as an expatriate. All right, you just... And I think I belong to a generation that didn't have to be expatriates. Um, largely the people who became expatriates, they either found uh, a life for themselves, somebody like Peter Porter, for example, mm. who found that he could support himself by reviewing, uh, being a metropolitan critic, uh, by working for the BBC and all the rest of it. Uh, and Australia would never offer you that. Mm. Uh, but once he had discovered that that was a comfortable way of earning the money that supported his writing. So I think a lot of people in his... And his generation is only... He was only eight or nine years older than me. Mm. But, my, but by my generation, uh, with frequent flying and all the rest of it, uh, it was easy to be out of the country and in, in the country again. Mm. And basically... A writer is always in his head. And so, you know, Australia's as much in my head, especially when I'm writing, as whatever's out, outside mm. the window, mm. wherever I am. Uh, we were talking before about um, you now live on 
the Gold Coast, and I was saying, oh, that sounds a bit... <laughs> and you say, talking about the landscape, that is what's important to that. And the landscape's very important in your books, isn't it? Yes. Uh, look, I think that where you actually grow up, um, you have those that first sensory um, experience of the world. That's a particular light, particular times of day, times of year, um, a very peculiar... Um, I mean, Queensland, southern Queensland, where I was born and grew up, is very, very different from, you know, what people think of as Australia. Nothing like the outback. It's evergreen. <laughs> um, and there's always, in Brisbane particularly, you know, in the summer there's always a storm at four o'clock in the afternoon and then at five o'clock there's this amazing light after the storm. All of that becomes a part of your uh, sensory world, mm. which you never lose. Mm. And uh, often, uh, you know, when I'm writing, and especially if I'm writing about past in some kind of way, that's what I easily go back to. Uh, and then there are all those other things like the difference of space in places. I'm very, very um, uh, determined by, by space. You know, and in, in Queensland, that means those houses on stilts where there's above ground and then there's the ground. Yeah. Um, but also a place like Brisbane, which is a very hilly place, utterly mm. unlike Melbourne or, mm. or Adelaide, and there's that thing where you expect in Brisbane that when you come to the end of a street and you're at the top of a hill, you, 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 you have an utterly new, new view. Mm. And you begin to feel that's how all experience should be. It should always be about surprising new, new views. So that shapes your way of thinking as well as your way of feeling. And if that's there, often that's more important to you than the particular place you're in. Right. Uh, so it's those archetypal childhood landscapes that I go back right. to a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so poetry was the first form of yeah. that you write. What, what attracted you to poetry? Oh, look, I, um, again, I, growing up where I did in Queensland, where education was rather old fashioned. Um, we had wonderful reading books which introduced us to the whole range, I must say, of classical and English literature, American literature, all sorts of German and, and Russian stories and all the rest of it, but a huge amount of poetry, a lot of which we were uh, made to learn by heart, which I think is wonderful. If you learn poetry by heart, you're never scared of poetry. You know, what you've got in your, your mind is the music of poetry and there's nothing scary about that and it gives you real power over those words. So it, it's the music of poetry that has always been very, very important to me. And I think, you know, again, you, you, learning about what kind of poet I am after 60 years of practice, I think I'm essentially a lyric poet and as, as interested in the music that the poem makes as anything else. And you know, language uh, with rhyme and half rhyme and the rhythm and the, the pauses at the end of a, of a line which shape the meaning and all the rest of it, but you, you can make soundscapes there 
which contain their own meaning in, in a way that music does. And uh, it, it's, it's important because that's what makes poetry memorable. Yeats called poetry memorable speech. And the memorability of poetry is really very important. And it comes from the sound. So, um, uh, you know, once, once you've got that, um, you're, you're, you're inside the poem, not outside mm. the poem. That's why it's so wonderful to give kids the capacity to do that. And they, they love things like nursery rhymes and all mm. the rest of it, and we'll go on from there to mm. Wordsworth or Yeats or quite easily. Mm. And um, I read somewhere that one of your early influences was Kenneth Slesser, the Australian modernist, or the first yeah. modernist poet. Yeah, I was very, very lucky. I'd written some things in a school magazine, and an old boy had read them. I mean, with an old boy, somebody who'd left the school for right. two years. And uh, <laughs> he, um, he came up one day to me in the library at school and said, um, you need to read this. And it was Slesser's 100 Poems, which he just gave me and then walked away. And um, that was a, an absolute revelation, because I'd read, I'd begun to read some other modern poems, but I didn't think that there was anybody in Australia who had done that. This would have been about 1940, maybe 1948, 49, and um, uh, Kenneth Slesser had not been writing for nearly 10 years at that time, mm. so it was the whole of Slesser's work. So it was amazing to see how that kind of modernism could happen inside poems which were entirely about Australia. So a poem like uh, South Country, which I think is my favorite Slesser poem, um, that was just an absolute revelation of about how you might use landscape uh, which seems to be purely objective, but what you're really talking about is the mind and the inner world. And uh, I, I would guess that Slesser might have been quite influenced by somebody like Wallace Stevens in that, mm. that, that sort of way. So in, in a way, that was, a, that was for me uh, a path into, into um, 20th century poetry. Mm. I suppose it's now appropriate to talk about your new collection, <laughs> <laughs> an open book. Um, so this is a, is, it's a collection in its own right. It's not selected. Yeah, no, no, it's not selected. It's uh, poems that have been written over the last seven, eight years. Yeah. And they seem to range, to my reading, across a span from sort of childhood, memory, mortality. There's sort of roughly three sections in it. Um, tell us about how, how you see the collection and um, how you want it or would like it to work or imagine it might work for a reader? Yeah. Well, look, uh, it, the way it's laid out is that there are about, I think, 13 or 14 poems at the beginning which are called Kinderzenen. Mm. That's the name of a piece of music by Schumann, uh, which is about children's childhood, um, scenes of childhood. And they're quite short piano works. And I, th th these, these poems are about my childhood, which took place um, in Brisbane. Uh, it took place at the end of the Depression. I was born in 1934, so 
the first six years of my life would have been lived with a background of the depression. And I don't think people are aware of how utterly, utterly poor uh, Australia was for a long time. And it had been very rich in the middle of the 19th century. And then after, there was a big bank crash and strikes and everything in, in, 19, in, in 1893. And from then until the outbreak of the war and the end of the war, really, uh, Australia was desperately poor. So there was that. And then there was the war itself and the fact that I was living in a city which was occupied by nearly a quarter of a million American <laughs> troops for three years. Um, city was segregated, blacks on one side of the city, whites on the other. Uh, and the whole Pacific War was being organized from Queensland University by General MacArthur. And we, we lived in houses that were uh, blacked out every night because of possible raids and there were air raid sirens and we went into shelters bombs didn't fall there, but they did fall on Townsville and places. So it was a particular, a particular world of childhood. And I was interested in that, but also in childhood in, in general. Mm. Yeah. Perhaps you could, um, would you mind reading one of the poems from that? No, no, no. Uh, the, the poem called An Open Book is, um, it comes originally from... Uh, Maybe I can hold the microphone for you. Oh, well, if you could, thanks. <laughs> Trouble a bit with light. Mm. <laughs> uh, my mother always used to say to me, um, uh, don't think you're getting away with it. I can read you like an open book. <laughs> and uh, I don't think she really believed that, but she wanted me to believe it. Um, and then the other thing, you know, the exciting thing about poem always is the poem begins with something that may be a fixed memory like that, but it's got to move somewhere. And in the first draft, which often happens very, very quickly, the poem reveals where it's really going. And what this poem is actually moving towards is um, something uh, pictorial, and that is those um, famous uh, Cinquecento, 14th century, 15th century, um, Italian paintings in which you see the Virgin uh, as a young girl with a book in her lap and the Archangel Gabriel is there telling her she's going to bear a child. And then the next thing you see is she's sitting there and she's no longer got a book in her lap, she's got the child in her lap. <laughs> and that's where the, where the poem moves to. Um, so I'll just read it. An open, the open book. My mother could read me, or so she claimed, like a book. Fair warning. But I too was a reader and knew that books, like houses, have their secrets. Under the words even of plain speakers, echo and pre-echo. I learned to stay quiet, play a part, and waited for the plot to thicken. The Cinquecento light of early autumn. In the ample frame of a bay window, half asleep and dreaming, a staid Madonna. And wide-eyed, wordless, still new to a world of happenings as yet unhappened, her child, the open book 
in his mother's lap. It's beautiful. I, I might just say that the poem that that goes on to, which I will also read, <laughs> is very brief, is um, I, I, I learned to read, my mother read to me an enormous amount, and I learned to read spontaneously when I was about four and a half. I just discovered that having heard the same books over and over and over again, I could read them and I could actually read them off the page. Then I was sent to school, um, not to an ordinary school because um, I was too young, couldn't get into a school, and my mother found a kind of dame school I could go to with a woman who had only four children who she taught, and eventually there were eight. My sister joined us after a while. And I learned to write there. And what struck me was the huge difference there is between reading and writing. Because when I got to school, I had to learn to write. And that's an entirely different thing from reading. You know, you need to you need control and all this of it. And it, it revealed to me that when we talk about um, li illiteracy and literacy, we really need to work out whether we mean writing and reading both or just one. My, I strongly suspect that when we say that only 20% of women, for example, in the Tudor period uh, were literate, what that meant was they could read but they couldn't write. And those things are really, really, really different. Uh, and this is the moment when I learned to write. <laughs> but of course, that allowed me to be, become a writer. And, it's, and we used to, we were given a, uh, a slate and a dirty rag and some water to clean the slate with and a slate pencil. And we learned to make the first marks that um, allowed you to do cursive writing, which was called a pothook like that. So this is called the pothook. An anchor against the sky's unthreading blue of a garment worn thin or worn through. Nature will not provide. It is too busy with its own recoveries, its green revisions against loss. A handhold on what is there to be seen to be grasped, a more dependable version of breath. With all that would one day hang upon it, at a pinewood desk, the first pothook I learned to make, the taste on my tongue of the first mark on a muddy slate. And the book moves from, from that Kinderzeisen section, it becomes a little bit more playful. And you're notorious for your um, resistance to using computers and uh, <laughs> an email, aren't you? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have much technology. <laughs> Although you do have a phone, we noticed. I, I have a mobile phone, which is, you know, a very, very expensive smartphone. But if it, if it's all very well having a smartphone, but you have to be smart. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not very smart about the use of it. Um, this is a poem which is called orbard.com. <laughs> Trending this morning on Twitter. The same old, the nothing's new under, the noisy, the nosy as, 
that holds the mesh and mash of things together. Small wars in the grass, the loss, the lost, the itch, the ache, all tossed in and turned over. The blind, the bland as blend, in bridal ground frost, a long shadow, an antique caucus of magpies, their exchanges beyond the goss and gotcha of next and now, aspiring to the insubstantial sexting of pure presence that is bird call. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, we, we get worried a great deal about misappropriation. I think your microphone. Um, I think it's really bad of us to appropriate it, bird talk, and call it Twitter. <laughs> Did you have um, a famous Twitter in mind? When oh, you yes, yeah, well, we all have a famous Twitterer in mind. <laughs> We've really, really kind of now moved into the world of the Twitterati. <laughs> um, so, so, what other things are you trying to do in this, in this book? you can illustrate with a, a poem. Well, uh, to be playful with language huh. is part of that. Uh, also to be able to talk about things that really matter um, with some kind of lightness. And I'm, I'm very interested in um, uh, poems as spatial entities. Uh, this, this book is a very beautifully designed mm -hmm. book, a very beautiful book. And partly that is a response to um, the way uh, the reading of a poem, not necessarily the sound reading of a poem, or like what I'm doing now, but the vision of a poem is something that's very, very important to its, mm. its life and its individuality. So um, I'm very, very interested in how you open poems up so that they have space between the words and space between the the groupings of the words and the poem can breathe in that way. And as I think I said before, very, very interested in what happens at the end of lines. Because at the end of a line, there's just a moment between the I being at the end of one line and moving to the beginning of the next one, in which something can happen, something surprising can happen. Uh, the meaning can go a different way from the way you expect. So I'm very, very interested in that kind of experimentation um, throughout the book. And of course, you know, later in the book, um, I really do need to take up um, subjects like the fact that old age has <laughs> a certain kind of quality of its own <laughs> and a certain end of its own. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The book, the type setting is quite visually resting too is that how, how involved were you in that uh, yeah i well, well i i'm interested in those things and i think the people who did the setting of the book uh were aware of that in ways that made them you know take a lot of trouble uh, look usually um how a poem comes to you is often a matter of language a, a word which grabs you in some kind of way an ordinary word, but which you suddenly look at in as if it were something quite new. So that's often the beginning of a poem. Sometimes the, the 
poem begins with a uh, a half grasped memory. Uh, this poem is very unusual in beginning with an actual incident. Uh, do we know the page? Uh, and I think I was particularly interested in this because normally the senses we think of are sight or taste uh, or touch, but this was smell, which is really quite, quite an interesting one. And um, the poem is playful. Uh, begins, as I say, with a real incident, but I didn't know where it was going. And, you know, what the poem, what, what you follow through the poem is the poem itself leading you to the point where you realise what it's really about. So this is called Incident on Myrtle Street. I was woken at some hour of darkness before dawn by a scent so heavy on my senses on the room that I was convinced a burglar had broken in and was loitering upstairs or in the hallway or having caught my footfall on the landing above was lying low in the laundry or sitting upright and unbreathing in one of the Windsor chairs unaware it was his scent that it betrayed him. I checked the door to the balcony then the door to the street with its double lock in the dark front room, I checked the sofa. Stretched full length on its French blue, he'd be hard to detect. No one was there, but the scent was overpowering. What kind of scent, Kay would inquire at breakfast? Was it musk? Was it pine? No, something sweeter. Why do you ask? Something sharper, maybe cheaper. Because that would tell us, he told me, seriously, what kind of angel you were visited by. Here, I protest, in Myrtle Street. Why not? I took it in. Sometimes I wake to the smell of coffee being brewed downstairs. It wakes me. Why not the smell of an intruder? When I woke again, the scent had faded. What had not was the change I felt on my skin, on my nerves. Later, I worked for an hour or two at my desk, struggling with angels of another sort who leave no trace I would call a scent of musk or sweat or pine. Only pen strokes on a page. They have changed with their lingering when they deign to linger, or a dazzling blankness when they do not. <laughs> and so the last section of the book, um, I was sort of fascinated. My, my brother, who's a, a little bit younger than you, is suddenly started to um, talk about his life being finite. And <laughs> And so your section, and he bent to longevity, is sort of, a, is it a celebration of age or? A it's a consideration. A consideration. A consideration <laughs> of age, yes. Um, you look pretty good though. That's not a guarantee of much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<clears throat> there is that um, series of about ten poems, I think, yeah. and then that's followed by the very last poem in the book, and I'll, I'll read that. It's called Before or After. At the threshold of a familiar room, on a breath suspended, as if the attention of a benign lifetime observer for two beats, then four, had wavered or been withdrawn. The matter of a moment only, of no moment or matter. Australian, uh, Austrian bentwood chairs on all fours grounded, old roses in a bowl. But of the chairs, it is the play of their curves in silhouette on a sunlit wall that holds me. And of the roses, their smoky velvet unbodied self-translation. At something more than four score, till the big surprise kicks in and leaves me breathless. Most surprises, though not unwelcome, are small. It is the small, the muted inconsequential at this point that comes closest to real. Not to startle my ghost in the shadow that has stepped into the room before me, I pause. On the air, two bars in 5-4 time, faintly recalled, a spook sonata. Dust motes in a sunshaft ascendant, before or after the fact. So it's your final poem for the book. <laughs> yes, yes. But not your final poem. Not. <laughs> <laughs> Was there something else you wanted to? I uh, I, I, I read, read just one other one, which I um, I, I, I there are, there are lots of things uh, in the world that um, as I think when you get very old. Um, <laughs> Uh, enormously attractive to you in an optimistic way. Um, for me, I used to sit on my balcony quite a lot and listen to people going past in the streets below in a terrace house at um, Chippendale. And the thing that I always listened to with most pleasure was the voices of three-year-olds <laughs> endlessly arguing and telling their parents how things were and what they should be doing and what should happen. And they are wonderful little creatures, those three-year-olds, because they have just such an assurance that the world is theirs. And it is theirs. That's a great thing. And the other thing which I um, have always been interested in is birds. I think of all the creatures in the world, you know, that surround us mostly in suburbs and in our ordinary life, which is not true of, of elephants or giraffes. Um, they are, they're wonderfully free other creatures. And this is, um, this is a, 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 again, a, an actual experience of sitting in Central Park in Sydney, which is a little place right in the middle of the city, uh, and seeing a little three-year-old at work. It's called The Prospect of Little Anon in an Inner City Greensward. And the, temp the title is a bit like Marvel's um, Prospect of Little T.S. in a Prospect... No, something of Little T.S. in a Prospect of Flowers. An open lawn between st stacks of high-rise glass 
An anonymous three-year-old, bearsark, sleeveless, swerves to scatter a flock of resident top knots, discovers breath to repeat their cries and hunts them skyward, one, two, more, too many for his accounting. He takes a break from his animal agency, reports to his fist as to a microphone, then cha changes tack and cries havoc on a scrawny, slow-stepping, elegant, awkward, sacred ibis that instantly goes to pieces and scoots out of his path. <laughs> a world that's given, he its chosen one, the darling of whoever it is up there, out there, that is looking on and holds him in provident affection. A venture little anon after a lifetime of occasions such as this, unique but nowise special, will not recall. The moment is his, mine only at a distance, mostly of years, but also of accidental presence, and something almost forgotten may be repressed of self. I set it down for little Anon's sake, since he'll not do it. The field of opportune opponents and companions, challenge, contest, fabulous beasts is one. Nonplussed, the day is scarcely begun. He turns aside, consults his fist. What now? What next? <laughs> well, on that note, what is next? What, are you, what project have you got? I haven't got a project. I expect that um, things will go on appearing that that uh, demand to be looked at and dealt with in some kind of way so that I find out why I'm looking at it, right. why it's grabbed me. Um, that will no doubt, I hope, um, give rise to other poems. How many, I don't know. Right. Do you, you said before when um, you were writing novels, you, you'd, you said that the process was that something would interest you and you'd want to follow it through. Is that how you a poem comes to you, or yes, yeah. I mean, some that... something is happening, and you don't know quite what. So you sort of sit there with the pencil and you write down whatever comes to see if what it has to tell you. And you know that if you're lucky, that becomes the draft of a poem. Mm. I mean, sometimes it peters out and it's going nowhere, but if it goes right through to the first, right through the first draft. I mean, you, you have usually got a poem. And that first draft can take 10 minutes, 20 minutes or whatever. It's astonishing how complete that draft is. There's an already an organic form there. There's something there that has moved to a conclusion that says that's what this whole occasion was about. It may be a very, very long time before you get the poem into the kind of shape where you would want it to be published. Mm. Uh, but essentially, everything that matters most in the poem is there in that yeah. first draft. And it's pro the product of a, of a few minutes of extraordinary concentration and of your mind falling into a particular place where um, you yourself know nothing, uh, where you 
you don't even feel that you're entirely directing what's happening. Now, D.H. Lawrence, numbers of people have tried to explain that kind of state in which the poem gets written. D.H. Lawrence has a really, really good um, description of it. He says that uh, what's happening is what he calls the daemon, D-A-I-M-O-N, has taken over. And what you've got to do is to put your hand over your mouth and not try to speak, but to listen to the daemon. And if you speak, you'll destroy the whole situation because you'll write muck. Uh, you, what you've got to do is to stay out of it. Stay silent, hand over mouth, and let the daemon tell you what to write on the page. And I mean, that's as good a description as any. I mean, in numbers of, of uh, poets will describe exactly the same kind of state, uh, call it different things. And the process of writing poetry, do you allot a certain amount of time each day to...? No, no, yeah. no, no, no. I think if that's the, the reason, I think, perhaps why uh, when you get to my age, you, you would choose to, if poetry is something you feel comfortable with, you would choose poems rather than something else because if you're, if you're writing a novel, um, you really do have to do it every single day at a particular time. It's, it's, it's just like being an athlete. If you leave two days pass, then when you come back on the third day, it'll be a real struggle. And the struggle is how quickly you can fall into that state where the writing is doing itself. And, you know, if you're writing a novel, you say, okay, it's maybe, it'll, maybe it'll take six months, maybe it'll take a year. Uh, but you've committed yourself to that. Um, poetry is likely to come absolutely at any moment. I mean, it, a, a combination of words will suddenly hit you and you just write them down and say, I'll look at that later or yeah. I'll look at it right away. But you don't set out to write a poem. Mm. The poem discovers you. Right. And so it's not likely that you'll write more fiction. But you uh, might. I look at the body of work I've got as a writer, and it seems to me to be um, relatively complete uh, to this extent that um, all, all the works that are there I see as being related to one another and as uh, communicating with one another away, in a way and making a, a single conversation. Uh, I don't know if they would want something added to that. <laughs> And I, and, and it would have to, I would have to be convinced that what I've got to add is something that they need, that changes them, that challenges them, as I said before, that amplifies them in some way. Otherwise, it's just the vanity of, of addiction. <laughs> and I think you can admit to yourself as a writer, and that writers uh, are addicted to writing, they oughtn't to be addicted to publishing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it probably that that's a nice <laughs> note <laughs> to finish. Uh, um, I just also wanted to thank you too, um, because David, you may or may not know, has been a, an ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation for probably since its inception, haven't yes, you? Yeah. Right back from when gone again. It's me. Uh, the technology knows I don't approve <laughs> of it. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, right back from the days when Susie Wilson up in Brisbane, who had the wonderful first idea of all of this, uh, told me about it, I was impressed. And of course, she was doing it, that on a very, very small scale, that was sending books out to uh, a very small number of communities. And then people like Mark, uh, David Gaunt in Sydney, and other people in the um, uh, uh, independent bookshop came on board. She has an independent bookshop too called River, River Bend. Um, and really the, the whole venture became at that point national. Mm. And there are wonderful ambassadors uh, for it. I'm only one and I'm, I'm not one of the ones like uh, Andy Griffiths, for <laughs> example, who goes out all the time to the actual communities. I mean, he is absolutely wonderful uh, in the work that he has done. Well, all I've done really is, um, you know, added my <laughs> name and weight to as, as one can in which, whatever which way. Which is very welcome. Yeah, but I've, it's certainly it, it's a wonderful, wonderful scheme. And it has been wonderful to know particularly uh, the women uh, who go out and teach the mothers and children to read mm. because the, one of the wonderful ideas of this was that you would actually teach the mothers to read uh, and, and that, that a, a mother with a child on her knee being read to um, would become something new in, in that, that culture. Yeah. And the, the people who teach that were just so inspiring. Mm. A bit like your poem, The Open Book. <laughs> <laughs> well, please join me in, in thanking David for his generosity. You're all very fortunate that you've got a copy of the book that you can take home. It's been signed by David. And I'm sure if you wanted to say hello to afterwards, I'm sure he'd yeah, be most yeah. welcome to... Uh, Sorry for any moment when this was uh, <laughs> lost. Yes, as we know, technology and um, well, me and David is <laughs> not a <laughs> great combination. But once again, thank you so much, David. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for coming. Oh, David has said if anyone would like some, to ask a question, he'd be more than happy to, um, to answer. So has anyone got... Oh, we do have a few. Right. Somebody will come... In your thinking about writing... <clears throat> Thank you. In your thinking about writing... Do you work during the night in your thoughts on what you, are, you have already done? The latest poem, do you revise it, shape it, think of it? Uh, that, that's it? an interesting question. It's about the... Uh, normally, that, I don't do that with poems. That is, uh, the question really, as you heard, was whether you go back to it and, and work it. Uh, that's fatal. I mean, you'd never get to sleep. Um, <laughs> But I certainly, when I was, say, living in um, Campagnatico in my house in Italy, I would get up early in the morning and usually write uh, be between about 7 and 10. And then I would go and do the shopping and all that kind of stuff. Often go um, back and read what I'd written and then go for a long walk and things that I might want to change 
or new aspects of it might occur to me in the walking. I, I find that there's a very, very close relationship between certain kind of physical activities and the way the mind works. It's one of the reasons why I, I write by hand, because I, I like the, the physical relationship. Uh, there are two other things which are great for um, rewriting or for writing when you get to a point and you think, I don't know where things are going, I've got to have a bit of a think now. Uh, one of them is walking, and it's got something to do with that pace of walking. Uh, and the other one, as I hesitate to admit because people always laugh, is ironing. <laughs> and <laughs> there's something very, very comforting about the pace of ironing. And uh, uh, to the extent where, you know, uh, uh, Patrick White was a great friend for a very long time. And he would sometimes ring up, and he'd ring up usually in the morning. It'd be about eight o'clock, and this booming voice would say, I hope I'm not interrupting the ironing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I think what you do is write, and then read it over and see what it's like, and then go away and let certain things change and settle. Um, but I would try and leave it a bit open so that when I came back to it the next morning, I wasn't starting uh, completely anew. I, was, I had something in mind about where it, it might go. Uh, I, I might say, I mean, it, it, it's astonishing to me how the things get written because an imaginary life, and I know this because I kept a diary quite by accident. Uh, I haven't done that much in my life while I was writing An Imaginary Life. And that book was written on 21 days over about six weeks because the diary tells me so. And during that time, I marked 1,000 HSC papers and 600 first-year poetry papers uh, at the university. I worked on the novel always between about half past six and eight o'clock in the morning, uh, and then the rest of the day I did all that marking. Now, nobody would tell you that that was the ideal circumstances <laughs> under which to write a novel, but that was the easiest of all my novels to write, and there were hardly any corrections to be made. So that really came uh, in a particular kind of concentrated way, you know, in certain part of the day, and maybe all that empty other stuff of mind w w contributed to it in some way. I, I just think writing is a very mysterious process and I think, you know, the more you understand that it's mysterious, the more likely you are to be able to do it. I just had a really quick one and I think you've partly answered it already, but I remember seeing you at a Melbourne Writers' Festival probably about 25 years ago <laughs> and you... Uh, uh, one thing I remember that stood out was that you said that you'd written Jono about 23 times or something longhand. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. The complete novel. Yeah. Look, uh, Jono is a different matter. That was the first novel for me. And I was, it, it, it was written while I was living in England and teaching. And I wrote many, many, many drafts of it. And they were all absolutely terrible. And it was because uh, I was so self-conscious about it. And what I was trying to do was to write a really, really clever novel. 
And one of the things is you have to really um, let all that go. And uh, when I go back and look at you know, the drafts of that, partly what it was, was the material was really, really upsetting to me. And I really did not want to face up to any of the, the real meaning of it. And so being clever and writing at a distance and always showing off in the writing was a way of protecting myself against it. And it was only when I looked, I went away on a sabbatical in 1972, it was only when I went away and I looked at some of the poems I'd been writing, which were absolutely straightforward, you know, like the year of the foxes or something, you know, um, I thought, that's how you do it. You just write absolutely simply, not trying to be clever, not trying to impose on the thing some kind of view, but letting the, the stuff tell you where to go. And then I had no trouble at all. I wrote the first draft of Jono in Florence, in a friend's flat, in about three months. But I'd had a terrible, terrible time before. David. I, firstly, thank you for your novels. I really enjoy the Australianness of your novels. But could you tell me how have you been affected by Italy and the Italian way of life? How by how, by Italy and the Italian way of life? Oh, look. Um, it's very difficult to say because I I really chose to go and live in a very isolated place. And, um, I mean, a, a lot of the things that I discovered there uh, were really, really important to me. I mean, I discovered, for example, um, that everybody thinks of Italy as being a Catholic country. And in that village, I think three old ladies went to Mass every morning. And as far as I could see, what everybody actually worshipped was olive trees. <laughs> and... Um, that was a huge revelation because the thing about those villages is just how close to the earth they are. And I really, really discovered that. And in some ways, what it took me back to um, was, you know, my grandfather uh, had come from Lebanon um, in the 1880s or something like that. And I spent a lot of time with him as a small kid because he had a garden uh, at the bottom of our house, we had a big house with a lot of land and he, he lived two doors away and he, he came there and I used to go and help him in the garden and he was growing eggplants and beans and all the rest of it, killing the, the fowl at the end of the week for Sunday dinner, um, winnowing wheat. And so it was, Italy was, a, it was astonishing to go back to that Mediterranean world, which I'd had that contact with, but hadn't had any particular understanding of. Uh, and I think that was very, very important. People um, often say to me, oh, once I came and saw Campagnatico and your life at Campagnatico, uh, I understood how you came to write An Imaginary Life. Well, An Imaginary Life was written before that. But in a way, it was looking for what, what Italy offered in that way. So I was very, very grateful for... Uh, ten years, really, and more, 
uh, 10 years almost full time. It happened to coincide with something else, which was the Red Brigade's period. So it was um, a, a revelation about something else, which was, you know, that whole um, really violent revolutionary stuff, which I tried to write truthfully about, as I observed it in Child's Play. Um, so it, 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 was, it was different things, very primitive things and very disturbingly modern things at the same time. I think we've probably got time for one more. Oh, yeah, thanks very much, David. It's been um, <coughs> really great. I'm just wondering whether you feel um, bothered about... Um, <coughs> you've, you've lived a long life and seen many changes and we're living in a <coughs> um, an interesting time currently. I'm, I'm just wondering if you're bothered at all about the state of literacy and <coughs> reading and reading practices and... I, I travel on the train each morning and a lot of the reading now seems to involve <coughs> this and um, and <coughs> a kind of seems to suggest a very kind of short attention span to what people are engaging with and um, <coughs> yeah just well, wondering whether you feel kind of concerned and whether it's something to write about <coughs> yeah look there are a lot of things to say about that is the first thing is a positive thing and that is that I think the survival of literature, of serious literature, has always depended on a very, very small number of serious writers, readers. And I don't think that number of readers proportionally has ever really changed. I think there are still people today who read um, because it's another form of experience for them that they can't do without. And, you know, they'll get that from a modern Australian book or they'll get it from the Iliad or they'll get it from War and Peace or they'll get it from all sorts of things uh, that they're open to. So I, I don't think that we're ever in danger of losing an interest in those things because there will always be that um, happy few, as Stondale called them, or fit audience, though few as Milton called them. I, that's not a problem. I think there are certain problems, other problems. Uh, I think in Australia, for example, we have changed the demographic in the country now very, very rapidly and in very large numbers. And I don't know, I just simply don't know how much of what we in the past have considered to be the matter of Australia, you know, the, the things that uh, go to the, the history and the making of the culture here, how much of that will remain of interest to people who've come from so many other places where their culture is very different? I, I don't know what, what, you know, what, what the population of the country in the future will think of the kind of books I write or the kind of books Patrick White wrote or kind of books that... Um, Christina Stead wrote, or, you know, don't know that. The other thing which I do think we need to think about is we now live at a very, very important moment in the language, in English. And it's the moment that previously both Greek and Latin went through. It is a moment 
when the majority of speakers of the language are speakers for whom it's not the first language. All they are interested in is communication in the most general kind of way. So all of that um, uh, addiction to the, the variety and the nuances of the language, which goes with literary language, and English is the most extraordinary language because it has a huge vocabulary, huge number of um, synonyms uh, which have different um, tiny grades of meaning and expression and feeling and all the rest of it. If you're not dealing with that, the language can very easy, easily fail. And I think, you know, it's no, it's no one's fault. It is just that most people now use English as a, as a, language, of, a language of communication. And they know nothing of the nuances of language and they're not necessary to, to their usage of it. That's, that's a, a real question about the language. And it's one of the reasons why poetry matters so much. Because in poetry, that's exactly where the language is working. Oh, right. There's a question down here. But well, I think we might have to get out of the theatre. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> it, 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 um, as, as an English teacher, uh, I, um, I've inflicted your novels on my students before. Uh, so that's one way of keeping them uh, reading. Uh, and very favourably, Ransom is currently on the VCE text list and has been for a number of years now. Um, and that I find that the students do enjoy it. So thank you, right, uh, thank you. Uh, very much for that. I'll just leave it at that comment. I did have another question. <laughs> okay. Once again, please thank David. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. <laughs>